Well, good morning, Generations Church. Welcome back to our Sunday worship service. Whether you're joining us online or outdoors, you are family. And as we gather digitally and some in person, we want to remain connected. And so Sunday gatherings are one of those ways we get to remain connected. Community groups, other things that we do. Uh, but we hope that if you're live streaming right now, if you're watching us online, that you feel connected. And if, there, if you don't, please, by all means, reach out, let us know. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 13, as you've already heard, as Terry read us a portion of this passage from the liturgy. We're going to pick up in this story now as we're transitioning from Samuel to Saul, from prophet to king. As the people have cried out, we want a king like the nations around us. And so they choose a man really based on uh, kind of who he is, what he looks like, not really his gift set. And they start moving away from Samuel, a godly leader. And so we're really in that kind of piece of the story right here. I want to give you a main idea today as we work through this passage. Uh, waiting on God. How, how do we wait on God? So hard circumstances often test our patience, right? Do we wait for God to lead us or do we take matters into our own hands? That's our question today. When hard, hard circumstances happen, they test us, right? They test us in our patience often. Will we wait on God? Do we wait for God to provide the way, the solution, the outcome, the healing, the comfort, whatever it might be, or do we take matters into our own hands? Now, I think this is something we all tend to struggle with, is that we get out in front of God, we get impatient, we do things in our own strength rather than waiting on God. We'll see that in the story today. So 1 Corinthians 13, uh, <laughs> 1 Samuel 13, that's a whole different book, right? 1 Samuel 13, verse 1 says this, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, so real quick, it's three years later after our last passage, right? So we left off Samuel's speech as they begin to transition. A year goes by and then Saul actually becomes the king. Now it's two years that he's been king. Verse two, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash on the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. Jonathan is Saul's son. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So here we go. The job of the new king is to get rid of Israel's enemies, primarily who we see in this, in this book of the Bible are the Philistines. Verse 3 says, Jonathan defeated the garrisons of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So round one goes to Saul, right? The Israel, Saul, this new king over the people, the Hebrew people, Israel. They win a battle over the Philistines. Now, the Philistines have been attacking them, and it hasn't always gone well. There's been some wins. There's been some losses. Now Saul is their new king, and his job really is to protect his people. And so he goes out after their number one enemy. They have a, you know, some battle, a skirmish, and they win this one. And Saul selected these 3,000 people. He's got 2,000, 1,000 with his son. And they have this military victory. And they celebrate this. They celebrate this win. And just imagine uh, when we've had battles in our past or we celebrate victories. Or probably the most recent thing I can compare this to would be back when uh, Osama bin Laden died. Right When there was that moment where this guy's been attacking us, this guy's been affecting our nation 
and the military got him, right? And there's that kind of celebratory point. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our Christian minds around a little bit because are we celebrating the, the death of somebody or are we just being honest like, hey, are, we have an enemy that's now gone and uh, we don't always do well with that. But here, Israel has a physical enemy that borders them. It's been attacking them and God has given them victory. And so they're celebrating this victory. And I think we can do that. I think we can join in even when it means the result on the other end of things is bad for them, but we have these victories, and that's where they are, and they're celebrating this, and they're, they're championing Saul's name, and, and they're just celebrating that they've had a victory. Verse 5, it says, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth So remember, Saul has 3,000 men, right, divided between he and his son. So 3,000 total. He sent everybody else home. Yes, they've had this victory, but now the Philistines rally. Like, they come back, right? And it says, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And then it says this, troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Fear-inducing, right? There, there's this collection of army coming towards them that you can hear. You can hear the sounds of the horses and the soldiers as they march towards you. And the, and the, and the impact, again, it's, it's fear-inducing that this army is at least 10 times the size of your army, plus some. And you can hear them coming. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks, and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So Saul's army is now running, right? Well, that victory was really short-lived, right? So here's what happens. The, the, the people are now coming. They've had this small victory, and they, they're, they're celebrating their king and their win, and they're, they're cheering. But then what happens is, well, their enemy isn't defeated. Their enemy gets bigger, right? And all of a sudden, they realize, okay, the battle just got bigger, and we're still this. And all of a sudden, they become afraid, and Saul is fearing this, and Saul is starting to get nervous. And then the people start to scatter, and they run, and they hide in caves, and some leave the area and like cross a body of water to go to another place. So here's something for you. Well, let me ask you this. When our, our faith is in human solutions, all it takes is a bigger problem, and we are upside down once again. That's where they find themselves, right? Where is it that when we kind of celebrate a win or, or we do something, and then the circumstances shift, and all of a sudden we realize, well, the problem isn't just this little battle, right? That, that, yes, we got this little win, but it's this gigantic army coming at us. Well, when we've been relying on human solutions, that little battle that we just won, we're not big enough to face the new one. Well, what do we do then? Well, what do we do when we've been trusting in our human ability or our collective in our nation, a collective human ability? What happens when the problem is now much larger and we're incapable of overcoming it? Verse 8, Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul and Samuel, Saul the new king, Samuel the prophet, who's on his way out. They must have some arrangement here where in seven days, Samuel will arrive and help discern God's direction for Saul. 
And that should kind of give you a snapshot, like the brokenness. They went from someone God speaks to, to a king who needs someone that God speaks to to help him discern where God is leading them. And somehow, we don't know how, but they arranged this seven-day timeline, right? And it says, but Samuel did not come, and the people are still scattering. So the army keeps disappearing. Saul's soldiers keep leaving. The problem keeps coming towards them, and no Samuel to tell Saul, here's what God wants us to do. So the Philistines are getting closer, and Saul is losing men. The prophet's a no-show, and Saul doesn't know what to do. So waiting on Samuel was to find out what God desired for them, right? But Samuel's taking too long. Where in life do we find ourselves often with this, like the problem is coming faster and faster, and the solution isn't here, and God hasn't really spoken yet, and we feel this, maybe in our lives, we feel this panic, like, okay, what do we do? Well, maybe we're in the middle of a pandemic, and you've lost work, or you've, you know, whatever it might be, and the, then you, maybe you, it's like we get a little win, or like, okay, things are going to go better, and then bang, you know, December, January happens, and everything is big again, and our human solutions aren't there, and the problems are coming, and our tendency is to now not wait on God, not wait to hear what Samuel would tell us that God is saying, not wait on that, but rather, let's take things into our own hands. We've experienced that here in the church, and, and there's you know, with good people, with good and godly, Jesus-loving people, where we've like, okay, we can feel the pressure of not meeting together. We can feel the pressure of when our community groups are online, it's harder, right? Still works, it still is good, it's still community, we still get to learn and grow and pray and talk and meet together, but it's harder. And then we run into this situation where like, that the answer isn't coming fast enough, and our desire internally is to kind of grab at a solution, take things into our own hands. How do you do in that circumstance? How do you do when that answer isn't coming fast enough? Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he, Saul, offered the burnt offering. So Saul takes matters into his own hands and begins to go and do a job he's not qualified to do. He takes the offerings like a priest or a prophet would. He takes them like a leader that God had anointed and called, and he begins to go through the motions. It's almost as if we, if we do some of the right things, like, okay, well, if I pray, if I go to church, if I do this, if I give, if I serve, if I whatever, you fill in the blanks. If I do this, it's almost like we can force God into, kind of manipulate God into, or cause God to give us the outcome we need. And that's what Saul does. He takes the, the sacrifice and the worship, and he does it even though he's not called to, thinking, well, if I do this, then God's got to answer. I find that sometimes we do that, but we go through the motions thinking, well, if, again, if I pray, if I go to church, if I worship, if I do this, if I do that, if I go through all the motions, God's got to give me the answer. And what we're trying to do is, you know, manipulates a strong word or, or cause might be a better one, but trying to get God to do what we feel God needs to do so that we can do what we feel we need to do. All of this because the mounting pressure right? All of this because the army headed towards us, or the virus headed towards us, or the economy, or the whatever. Whatever it is comes rushing towards us, and so we feel the pressure of addressing the army headed our direction right now. But God is silent. But God hasn't spoken. We're not sure 
what we're to do. So Saul takes these things into his own hands. Verse 10, it says, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. I love that line. As soon as Saul did the wrong thing, as soon as he finished, here comes Samuel. Samuel shows up as soon as that, and Saul goes out to greet him. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. So here are all these things, all these external circumstances. Saul is saying, listen, the army's coming, the people are leaving, you hadn't arrived yet. That's what he says. Verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I had to do it, Samuel. I, there was no other choice. I mean, the army was coming, the people were leaving, you weren't here, so I... I had to take one for the team, right? I had to go do this. And really what happened was Saul wouldn't wait any longer. Saul doesn't trust that God will arrive in time. God, uh, uh, Saul doesn't believe that, that God is going to rescue him. So Saul must do something to prompt God to move, right? So I had to, he tells Samuel. I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. I mean, there was no other choice, Samuel. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here's the penalty of Saul's actions. Your kingdom shall not continue. Like the failure of the priest prior to this, right? The book opens up, and there's Eli the priest, and he has sons, and his sons are corrupt. And Eli learns about it and says something to them, but never causes them to stop. So Eli becomes complicit in the sins, the corruption of the leadership of the people. So God says, I'm going to strip your leadership, and I'm going to give it to Samuel. And so God hands off leadership to Samuel. Then the people cry out, and they want to go to Saul, right? They, they want a king, but what is happening here, just like Eli lost his place, Saul has now lost his place. His royal lineage could have become the royal lineage for Israel, right? It will become David's. We'll see that next week, I believe. It will become the line of David, David, Samuel, uh, David, Solomon, and so on beyond them. And this line of David will all the way unfold, all the way up to Jesus. But what happens in this moment is this king the king that God allowed to be king when the people wanted a king. This king had the opportunity to follow God, but instead he didn't trust God. So he takes things into his own hands as if he can solve the problem. And, and we do this, right? We do this all the time. We take things back into our hands. We pray about them. We don't really get an answer. So we just kind of go and run, right? We make our decisions based on, well, what sounds like best to us. And that's how this whole book opens up right? Those final words in Judges where everyone did what seemed right to them, seemed best to them, where people did what was right in their own eyes. That's that ending line in the last few chapters of Judges that kind of tells us about the world that these people live in. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. Nothing could be closer to what we do here in America, in the church, in Southern California, right here, here in Cerritos, because we do what is right oftentimes in our own eyes not what God is calling us to. 
Sometimes the, 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 the line we cross to do that where we do what we think is right rather than waiting on God is the circumstances around us where we begin to panic. When we say, listen, the army is too big, the people are beginning to leave, the answer hasn't come fast enough, so I'm going to insert myself here and hope to manipulate God into helping me. What a scary thing to say out loud. That's what Saul does. I'm going to put this on the, on the screen for you. If we don't honor God with what we already have, why would he give us more? That's what Saul does. Saul has already been given the kingdom, but he doesn't honor God with what he already has been given. So why then would, would God give him more? Right? Why would God give us more if what he's already given us we aren't trusted with, that we're not handling faithfully? Right? So Saul fails and, and God penalizes him. I love this line. He says this, and this, we'll get into this when we get into David next week. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Church, that's what God is looking for. Men and women who are out for the heart of God, not for our own heart, not for the American heart, not even for the generation's church heart, but for the heart of God, that we live and, and desire the very heart of God, that we are after what God is after, that we, that we truly seek God not just causes, purposes, things, but we truly seek God, that we would be men and women after God's heart. Verse 15, and Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Just pause there for a second. Went from 3,000 down to 600. So to be fair to Saul, even though he does the wrong thing, he, he responds to this wrongly, to be fair most of his people left. He's feeling the pressure, but it's under that pressure is where he fails, right? Verse 16, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present stayed with him at Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, the other to Shual, and another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley, valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So the, the Philistines, the army, the, the, the enemy here are getting more and more bold and they're attacking at the edges and they've spread out these 36,000 people we're talking about plus an army that looks like the, the number of sand at the seashore. So this massive army, right? So they start breaking out into groups and they're attacking at the corners and edges of Israel. Verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make for themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Here's what we get here. We get almost like a, a parenthetical note in the middle of the story, almost like you're watching a movie and like a narrator tells you something, or it goes from this scene to that scene and then back to the battle scene. And so here's what's going on. The Philistines are closing in and starting to attack them. And then we get this little aside, this little conversation that says, listen, by the way, there's not even any blacksmiths in Israel. There's a, a cool archaeological truth that I was reading about this, that the Philistines were one of the first people to ever become blacksmiths and work with iron and metal and things like that. And so that's actually this aside, this parenthetical note, that Israel doesn't even have weapons at this point. 
Now remember, God has been giving them victory. They've been winning in battle because God has been blessing them, not because they have a gigantic army, not because they have the best weapons, because they don't have any of that, but because God has blessed them. So now Saul is saying, listen, I, God's not showing up. God's not trustworthy. God's not helping me. So I'm going to take things into my own hands. But come to find out, like, you don't even have anything in your hands. The only two people that even have swords are Saul and Jonathan. Everybody else is either fighting with their hands or with farm implements. And so the, the, the situation is bad. Saul is in a bad situation. The people of Israel are in a bad situation. But the point is not their situation. The point is their God. Their God is big. Our God is big. No matter what our circumstances are, our God is greater. And that's where Saul can't trust in that. And that's where we struggle to trust in our God, to trust in Jesus. When things are hard, we need to remember Jesus is greater. When things are, are tough, we need to remember that's when we, we must trust. Saul won't do that. So here they go, and they're kind of moving in their own plan, right? So verse Samuel, verse 14, starting in verse 1, it says this, On the day that Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So here's Jonathan, like, hey, things aren't going well. What can I do? So Jonathan's like, okay, there's a garrison of Philistines over here. There's a, a the small army, small troop over here. That we Let's go over here. So he tells his armor bearer, the guy that kind of goes with him, his buddy that, that carries his armor and goes into battle with him and fights alongside him. He said, let's go attack this small company of Philistines. Verse 2, Saul was, on, was staying on the outskirts at Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now, here's what's really important about this verse, is this little line in the middle that we might skip over, but there's a priest there who is wearing an ephod. And if you remember back when we were going through Exodus, uh, just before we started Christmas Advent last year, we went through the book of Exodus, and God tells Moses, listen, I want you to make priestly garments for Aaron and for his sons, and then for all the generations to come after them, all the way down to these people, right? And part of this that would go on the priest is an ephod. It's this folded chest piece, if you will, that would go on the priest. And inside of it, there was kind of this pocket, if you will. And inside of it, they would keep this thing called the urim and the thummim. And it's kind of a black rock and a white rock. It was almost like a way of ha having God show you what to do. It's kind of like, okay, do we go left or right? Black is left, white is right, and they would reach in the pockets, and they would trust God for the outcome. You pull out the white one, you go right. Okay. There's a kind of a, a way to flip a coin, but allow God to control where it landed. And so it's important. There's a priest here with an ephod, a way of hearing from God, a way that God had created. I know it sounds really weird to us, right? You're like kind of saying, let's, toss it, let's flip a coin, and God's in charge of the outcome, which is ultimately true. There's nothing that God isn't in charge of, right? So yes, he's sovereign over that, but this is not just a coin toss. This is a way that God had given Israel to help them learn what God is saying, that they would trust him and that he would oversee the answer. And so there's a, a priest with an ephod. That's what I wanted you to hear here. Verse four, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of one was Bozaz and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose on the north in the front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. 
Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, meaning the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, I want you to hear this. Jonathan says, we can trust in God. We can believe in God. It doesn't take a lot of people for God to win. God can win with a little. He can win with a lot. God is God. It's about God, not about us. And so Jonathan tells his armor bearer, let's go. Like, let's just go over there and see if God will give them into our hands. So while Saul is taking things into his own hands, his son Jonathan actually trusts in the Lord. And so he kind of puts forward this idea, this armor bearer, hey, armor bearer, come with me, verse 7, and his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish, behold, I am with you, heart and soul. That's a really odd declaration for your buddy just before you go into a battle, but okay, I'm with you, heart and soul, like his, his armor bearer is bought in, and, and, and he tells Jonathan, okay, listen, let's go, man, I'm with you. This is kind of an old school Jewish version of ride or die, like here we go, let's go do this, we'll do it together. We both come out together, or we both die there together, right? Verse 8, and then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So they kind of decide, listen, by what the Philistines say, we'll know how God wants to give them into our hands. So we will trust God for the outcome, whatever they say. If they say, come over, we'll go over, and we know that God wants us to go over there and wipe them out. If they say, hey, stay where you are, we're going to kill you, then we'll know we're going to stay here, and that's what God is saying to us. So they allow this. They trust in God enough. Again, back in those days, Urm and Thummim, things like that, it, was, it sounds like a game of chance for us today, but it was actually trusting in God in a way that God had given them. This is really similar to Gideon's fleece. If you're in a, commu a community group right now and you're reading through Judges or just read through Judges, then there's this story of Gideon who puts something out at night and says, okay, if it's wet in the morning, I know what God wants. And when that happens, he does it one more time. Go, if it's dry in the morning, then I know God's really in this. And he does that again. Commonly called the fleece, right? That we put a fleece out. We learn what God wants by maybe putting out a test. And that's what Jonathan does. He and his armor bearer, here's how we're going to handle this. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that, the, that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as well as it were half a furrow's length an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, and the garrison, and even the raiders trembled, and the earthquake, it became a very great panic. So Jonathan and his armor bearer trust God enough to put out this crazy plan. We're going to just like kind of pop up not too far away from the Philistines in this place where we can kind of hide from them, but we're going to show ourselves. And when that happens, if they say, come over here and, 
And that's what they do. They say, come over here and we'll kill you. And, and he says, if they say, come over there, we're going to go over there. If they say, stay there or we'll kill you, then we'll know that we're supposed to stay here. So they put this, again, fleece out, if you will. But they're trusting in God. They're trusting that God will deliver them. And so unlike Saul, where they take things in their own hands, they trust in God. God shows up. So the, the, the Philistines say, come over here, and so they do, and they wipe out these 20 men, and then like an acre's worth of people. It's a crazy story that begins to kick off the next round of battles between Israel and Philistines. Now, here's what happens. All this big, great big army hears about the victory, this battle, Jonathan and his armor bearer. Whoever escapes from here goes and tells these others, and everybody among the Philistines now starts to get afraid. Now, this gigantic army that's been growing and getting bigger and scaring Israel, and Israel's been running and hiding, now they're afraid, and they're beginning to run, and the earth below them is beginning to shake, and now this all the way gets back to Saul, who has no idea how to interpret what he's hearing. He hears about the fear, he hears about the movement, literally can feel like the ground shake from all these chariots and horses and soldiers. And Saul doesn't know how to interpret all of this. Is this good? Is this bad? What's going on? Verse 16, it says, And the watchman of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So no one knows what's happening. Saul's not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing. So he's like, hey, let's do a count. Let's figure out who's missing from among us come to find out it's his son and his son's armor bearer. Verse 18, so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So here's what happens. Remember that priest with the ephod? The craziness in the Philistine camps increasing. Saul's not sure how to interpret it, but he knows his son's missing and his son's armor bearer's with him. So he's not sure, okay, they're winning, are they losing, what happened, what's going on, are they afraid, or are they rallying for battle right now against me? He doesn't know. And so he rushes the priest over, and he tells the priest, listen, withdraw your hand. In other words, go into the pocket and tell me the will of God, the Urim and the Thummim, tell me what, and they have a, obviously, black rock means something, white rock means something. Hurry up, tell me now what God wants. Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand, right? Here's what happens. Saul rushes the process again. Now, in his panic, he does the same thing. He's taking things into his own hands. Listen, we're going to do this. We're going we're to pray, and then we're going to go fight him. Well, it just, prayer might mean God says, don't go fight him, right? They've already determined an outcome. They're trying to manipulate God into helping. Saul is taking things into his own hands again, I think of a story in the Old Testament that is the first telling of the gospel. In theology, they call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first telling of the gospel. It's when God shares the gospel. And it's right after sin enters into human history. And so sin has entered into Adam and Eve, and, and God has cursed them and said, listen, I told you when you sin, you will die, and now death will be a part of your human experience. And not only that, child will have labor that will be painful, and women will suffer in childbirth, and then men will suffer and struggle to work, and all these different things. And there's this, this kind of beautiful image of the Jesus being promised to, who will be hurt by the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, but ultimately will crush the head of the serpent. 
But right after that, right after that, that, that first telling of how Jesus will come and live and die and resurrect, and in that resurrection, crushing evil, how that will be for our sin, that first foreshadowing of the good news of God redeeming broken humanity like you and I. And in fact, if the gospel is new to you, let me just say this, there's a God who loves you and knows your sin and, and, and desires a relationship with you. And Jesus is that relationship uh, restoration that Jesus came and he lived in this life and he put on flesh, he's God in human flesh and he lived the life you and I are called to live and then he suffered and died for us and that he gave his life to reconcile you and to me to the God who created us, to the God who loves us, who, to the God who desires to be our solution and desires to lead us and not have us grasp at everything and take everything into our own hands. Jesus is that solution. The gospel is that if we believe in Jesus, we trust our lives into Jesus and we allow him to cover our sin, his resurrection power to live in us and overcome us, that if we are truly in Christ, then, then God is for us. God is on our side and that you can just be a believer in Jesus today. And we'll celebrate that today as we celebrate communion. And so this gospel message, as we back up all the way to the first time that anyone ever even hinted about the gospel, it was God to humanity. And it's the story right after that that I want to kind of help us wrap up today's message with, if you will. And it's right after that, what happens is Adam and Eve, after they sin, they cover themselves with leaves. The first thing that happens after they sin is this. They recognize that and are ashamed of who they are. And their response to that, they take their response, if you will, to kind of align it with the language today, they take that into their own hands. And so they cover themselves. So they cover themselves with leaves. But there's this verse in Genesis, says this, Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So here's what has to happen for this to be true. First, there's a sacrifice. You don't skin an animal and it still lives. So God sacrifices an animal, trades the life of an animal for their lives. But he also has to strip them of their efforts. He has to strip them of the leaves that they have covering themselves, and then he covers them with the skins of animals. God covers their shame, but he has to first strip them of their efforts to cover their own shame. Here's what we need to hear today. When we take things into our own hands, we're actually setting ourselves back. Ultimately, what God must do to reconcile us to him, God, in order to fix the circumstance, must mean he pries it back out of our hands so that he can fix it. He has to take our efforts at trying to cover our sin and our brokenness and our problems. He has to take that back and then cover us with the way he desired to do all along, in a way, in a way only he can. And so here's what happens. Saul is now rushing the process back in the same sin, back taking everything back into his own hands. And what he's doing is he's following, falling short as a leader. More importantly, he's, following, he's falling short as a believer in God. And when we do it, we fall short as a believer in Jesus. If I do it, first and foremost, I fall short as a Christian, not as a pastor. I fall short in my own faith. And if I do that, it affects my leadership. It affects your leadership. It affects our influence in the world. We'll close with this, verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. 
And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been in the, with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Here's what happens. God shows up anyways. Saul fails epically, but God shows up anyways. God covers and protects his people. What's gone on here is Saul has disqualified his own leadership, but God still shows up. So the Philistines are all in chaos, and what happens is Philistines start attacking each other, right? So this gigantic army that Saul was afraid of, God's fixed that. And all these people that were running away, when they hear what's going on, God brings them back. And the ones that are there, they fight, and God gives the victory. You see, when God overcomes our problem, God does it in a way we never could. God is greater. God overcomes. God arrives, and God does what only God could do. Church, let Jesus be the answer we cling to right here, right now. No matter what your greatest struggle is, economy, virus, the life that we live here riddled with politics and division today, whatever it might be, Maybe it's a struggle with an addiction, a struggle in a relationship. Whatever it might be, don't grab and take hold yourself, but rather release. Let Jesus be the solution. Let God be the answer. Will you pray with me? Jesus, as we gather today, we prepare ourselves for communion. I pray that you would, that you would remind us in this moment of how we take things into our own hands, how we how we try and solve our own problem, how we run out of patience for you. God, how we don't trust in you and we take things into our own hands. God, let us release today. Let us give back all those things we're holding on to so tightly. Let us release all that to you. Let us trust you in ways that we never have, individually, corporately as a church, together as a community of faith. Let us learn how to follow you in faith, and trust, and patience, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.